Welcome to an Atos podcast. Welcome back. My name is Reka Gerbisch, and you're listening to the Atos Healthcare and Life Sciences Digital Transformation Series, where we discuss current trends, permanent issues, and opportunities within the industry. Today, we'll be looking at critical challenges that pharmaceutical organizations face when it comes to the race to net zero, specifically challenges around supply chain and climate risk. Without further ado, I would like to welcome our two guests on today's podcast, Rylan Urban, who's a senior consultant here at EcoAct. He joined the company in 2021 as the first Canadian EcoActor and he works as a project manager to help organizations navigate their net zero and climate change challenges. And our second speaker is Lauren Sugden, Global Lead for Sustainability and Decarbonization for Atos's healthcare and life sciences customers. Lauren has worked for Atos since 2018 and is supporting customers to decarbonize their digital landscape through sustainable IT solutions. Welcome. How are you feeling today? Hi, Rekha. Hi, Rylan. Thank you so much for having us on the podcast today. I'm feeling great and super excited. How are you? Yeah, yeah. hi, both. Um, also feeling good. It's a nice cold winter day up here in Canada. So, yeah. Amazing. Are you ready to dive into the world of sustainable pharma? <laughs> Every day, always ready. <laughs> yeah, always let's ready. do it. Love it, love it. So, to begin, I thought we could set the scene a little bit, get a more general understanding. Mm-hmm. Lauren, can you tell us why is the topic of climate change so important for life science organizations in general? Yeah, of course. So I think it's kind of very well known, but if you're not aware, climate change and health conditions are massively kind of linked together. So we're starting to see worsening air pollution, there's extreme heat, increase in the risk of disease such as like respiratory and cardiovascular disease and in turn the health system treating us for those diseases which in themselves are actually a really strong contributor to greenhouse gas emissions which then further facilitates climate change mm-hmm. and it's actually already said that climate change is the single biggest health threat facing humanity at present and that between 2030 to 2050 alone climate change is expected to cause around 250,000 additional deaths a year from malnutrition, malaria, diarrhea and heat stress alone, which is just absolutely outstanding. Mm. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the raising number of extreme weather events probably play a big role as well. Yeah, massively. So you're completely right in that. And um, you're probably maybe not aware of this, but actually health shocks and stress are actually already pushing around 100 million people into poverty every single year. And with the impacts of climate change worsening this trend as well. Um, Climate change is already impacting health in several ways, and I think we've seen this across the news. Um, There's leading to deaths and illnesses from increased frequent extreme weather events such as heat waves, storms and floods, and then also the disruption of food systems. Um, And there's also increased vector-borne diseases and impacts on mental health issues as well. Mm. Thank you, Lauren. Um, I've actually read somewhere that around four percent of the world's CO2 emissions come from healthcare alone 
And one of the biggest contributors to this number is the pharma industry. Is this correct? Yeah, that's actually true. Um, if the healthcare sector was a country, it'd actually be the fifth largest polluter on earth. Whoa. And under like a business as usual scenario, emissions could actually triple between now and 2050 if we don't do anything to reduce the impact of climate change. That's crazy. Yeah, it really is shocking. Um, and for the pharmaceutical industry emissions specifically, these have actually been reported to be 55% higher than that of the automotive industry, despite it being a smaller sector. And laboratories, an example, on average, they use around four to five times more energy than an average workplace of the same size. So it's an absolute huge issue that really needs to be addressed. So I guess it's crucial for pharmaceuticals to drive their companies towards net zero. Yeah, definitely. So if we go back to look at the point of pharmaceuticals, I suppose, and they're very core, they're there to help people live healthier lives. And without a healthy planet, how can we have healthy people? And as global healthcare demands continue to increase, we know that biopharmaceutical sectors have a real vital role to play in the global goal of net zero. Um, and scientific consensus actually tells us that we have to achieve this no later than 2050 to avoid the most catastrophic impact of the climate crisis. Well said, Lauren. Well said. Um, on a slightly different note, I wanted to discuss with you EcoAct's annual corporate climate disclosure report. I saw the 12th edition come out last November, and I was wondering whether you could tell us a bit more about what is covered in this report. Yeah, I think maybe I can take this question. Um, so this report is a longstanding report that EcoAct has been publishing since 2010. Um, that evaluates the climate-related disclosures, actions, performance of large corporates across Europe and North America. Uh, and because we've been publishing the report for so long, what we're really able to do is gather trends across various topics of interest, including decarbonization, climate risk, offsetting practices. Uh, so lots of really interesting insights in that report. Mm. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, the 11th edition, so the one coming out in 2021, partially looked at the trends in biopharmaceuticals. Yeah, yeah, I did, Rekha. Um, and just to pick off what Rylan was saying, actually, so it was my colleagues, Elizabeth Post and Luke Tracy, they actually wrote a blog called Ecoat's Prescription for Net Zero Biopharma, which some of you may have read. Um, but if you've not, then you'll be able to find it in all of our social media posts and on our web page. But what we did is we reviewed the results from Ecoat's 11th edition report published in 2021, as you stated. And what we did is we reflected on organisations' progress to net zero, specifically looking at the biopharma sector. Um, whilst we were in the global lockdown facing a global pandemic. Mm, I, I wonder whether we could dive a bit deeper here. So uh, for the audiences who haven't read the, the blog, could you just highlight um, a couple findings from the from the report? Yeah, of course I can. Um, so this was actually our first time examining the biopharmaceutical industry as part of this report. Um, and as I kind of briefly touched upon, we looked at how the industry reported on climate change, especially as it was adapting to the ongoing health crisis, because at that moment in time, we were actually facing the challenge, as we all know, of COVID-19. Um, and it was actually really great to see that on average, the industry itself scored really high among the average company, as well as performing well in emissions measurements, reporting and also target setting. But despite this relative strong performance, 
biopharmaceutical companies were still kind of showing as underperforming when it came to setting ambitious carbon reduction targets and achieving mm. progress against these, which I'm sure, Ryland, you'll be able to touch upon later on in a little bit more detail on this podcast. Um, but one thing that really stood out for me in the report was that in 2020, it was evident that there was lack of alignment to the science-based target definition of net zero from fa- some pharmaceutical organisations. And um, Rekha, I'm sure some people will probably be asking, what's a science-based Definitely. target? I was <laughs> so, just going to ask you that question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so just to give a little bit of context. So a science-based target is pretty much a clear defined pathway for companies to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. And it's a science-based target. So it's based purely on science as to what we need to do to be able to achieve net zero. And the SBTI, um, they help to prevent the worst impacts of climate change and future-proof business growth through those net zero goals and understanding that clear definition of net zero. And targets are kind of considered to be science-based if they're in line in what the latest climate science deems necessary to meet the goals of the Paris Agreement. So this is looking at kind of limiting global warming to well below two degrees above pre-industrial levels and then making sure we're pursuing efforts to limit warming to 1.5 degrees. So the actual definition as such of net zero from the Science-Based Target Initiative is to reduce carbon emissions across all scopes of emissions by a minimum of 90% by 2050 and then the maximum of offsets can be 10% and then that's your Mm -hmm. definition of net zero. Mm -hmm. Okay thank you for that uh, explanation. Um, Coming back to your point why do you think that there's this misalignment? I mean why aren't companies setting these science-based targets? Yeah, again, maybe I think this is a question I can take. Um, yeah. I mean, as as Lauren just highlighted, I think, you know, setting a science-based target is obviously a very ambitious commitment. <laughs> um, you know, the 90% reduction is super challenging to achieve. And, and one of the aspects of that is that that must also include a company's scope three emissions. So we're not just talking about the emissions of the company's operations. We're talking about their scope three emissions, which are emissions that arise from the activities within the company's value chain, both upstream and downstream. So specifically for biopharma companies, there's a lot of emissions that happen in their upstream supply chain. And in fact, the supply chain is often the largest source of emissions for these companies, but also the hardest to quantify. Right. So, for example, if you think about it, a, a single biopharma company, you know, might be sourcing raw materials from thousands of different suppliers, uh, many of which are, are usually small, uh, sometimes single site operators. And and you think about the challenge in, in quantifying the emissions from all of those suppliers uh, is, is quite challenging. So if I understand correctly, basically the availability of emissions data from these suppliers is scarce? Yeah, so I would say that the challenge is twofold. So the first is the one that I I just kind of touched on. So first of all, the challenge in in collecting and calculating emissions from all those suppliers, um, that's that's a major challenge. And the second is that even if they are able to do that, the second challenge is then how can they influence those suppliers to reduce their emissions? Uh, And it's kind of the combination of those uncertainties that I think creates hesitation among companies looking to set scope three targets 
because the pathway to reduce those emissions to 90% uh, isn't always really clear. So let's look at the first challenge then. I mean, Rylan, it seems like a very complex problem to solve. Um, are there any reliable guidelines to follow when calculating emissions without all the necessary data or maybe some platforms that can help companies find the right information? Yeah, so I think there's some organizations out there that could definitely help address these challenges. I, I think a good one is the CDP supply chain program. Um, the CDP supply chain program is essentially a, a tool or a platform that companies can use uh, to, to utilize to essentially send their suppliers uh, a highly standardized questionnaire uh, about their emissions performance. And the, the interesting thing about the CDP is that they'll also provide educational resources to the supply chain partners, right, such as webinars uh, or support and filling out the questionnaires so that the companies, you know, actually understand uh, what, what is being asked of them. Mm, that does sound uh, very helpful. And um, there goes the answer to the first problem. Now let's take the second challenge. You also mentioned the problem of influence over suppliers. How can companies encourage the businesses within their supply chain to work towards zero emissions? Well, I, I think it's important to start by sort of making the recognition that no single company is going to be able to transform the entire biopharma supply chain, uh, which is really what's required here if this industry is to get to net zero. Um, and, and it, you know, these supply chains are often shared by many different companies and, and oftentimes it's more productive, uh, and efficient to work together as an industry to address these challenges. Mm. So for example, there's, there's some organizations out there like the pharmaceutical supply chain initiative, uh, which is a really good example of, of a membership organization that essentially you know, provides companies these tools and trainings to engage their collective supply chains. Uh, and, you know, it, this, this uh, initiative, for example, has like something like 70 members, uh, including Astra, AstraZeneca and Sanofi and, you know, some of the companies that, that we'll talk about today. Um, so, yeah, this, this is a really great uh, initiative. Amazing. Thank you. And on a slightly different note, I also remember Lauren saying about the lack of climate risk reporting. What are some ways in which climate change is impacting some of these companies? Um, yeah, so I think first of all, maybe I'll just explain the two different buckets of climate risk. So they fall yeah, into two different ca categories. There's physical risks and transition risks. So on the physical risk side, you know, we're talking about things like extreme weather events, like wildfires or storms or floods. Um, and, you know, these extreme weather events have great potential to disrupt supply chains. And, and again, if we, if we think about this in the context of biopharma companies that have many different suppliers, uh, it, it essentially means that, you know, the more suppliers you have, the more exposure you have to these extreme weather events. Um, and, and this can also be magnified if companies source their biologic inputs from just a few key suppliers. 
Um, so, you know, therefore, supply chain disruptions, I think, is a climate risk that I think should be on pretty much every company's uh, radar. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the transition risk side, again, I think there's many different potential impacts here, uh, like carbon pricing mechanisms, uh, environmental regulation, mandatory climate disclosures, fluctuations in energy prices, uh, you know, stakeholder demands on companies. Uh, so many different ways that a company can be impacted by uh, climate risk. And what do you think is the reason behind companies not reporting on such climate risk? Um, I think one of the reasons is that I think there's sometimes just a lack of understanding of climate risk and what that actually means. Um, You know, because certainly it is something that's relevant to them. Uh, And second, along with that, I think is a lack of internal processes at the company to actually systematically identify and assess those risks. And sorry if I'm putting you on the spot, Rylan, but similarly as how you did with the first challenge uh, with the supply chain, can you share some tips or solutions for best practices specifically around climate risk reporting? Yeah, sure. Um, So reporting on climate related risk almost always happens in the context of the TCFD framework, uh, which is the task force for climate related financial disclosures. Mm -hmm. Um, The the TCFD framework was created by the Financial Stability Board, and it's intended to help organizations take action to improve their climate related disclosures and strengthen their climate related strategies. So within the framework, there's actually 11 specific recommendations that center on a company's process to identify, assess, manage, and monitor risk. Uh, And ideally, if a company is following the TCFD framework, they're also taking steps to integrate climate risk into their enterprise uh, risk management system. Interesting. I'm actually just thinking, Rylan, is there any eco is there any way Ecoact and Atos can help uh, with this problem? Any tools? Yeah, so as you as you can imagine, like these are challenges that uh, companies come with come to us uh, with qu- quite frequently. So mm. one of the, one of the things that we can do is perform a, a TCFD gap analysis which is essentially, you know, assessing how the company's actions are aligned with that framework and help them to create a roadmap to improve their alignment. That's that's an obvious one. Uh, and we can also do more like implementation type projects to improve their alignment, such as like a climate scenario analysis uh, to, you know, actually help them identify those risks and assess how they change over time. Uh, so, so companies with large operations or supply chains that we just talked about, you know, you know, could even use something like Ecovac's uh, climate risk platform to, to help them address these challenges. Actually, uh, could you elaborate on how this climate risk platform could help companies with, uh, I guess, their climate risk reports, right? Yeah, so the the climate risk platform is actually something that we recently uh, developed and launched at Ecoact. It's essentially a climate risk assessment and visualization tool uh, that allows companies to assess their exposure and vulnerability 
um, to 28 different climate hazards uh, built into the platform. Uh, and these, these 28 climate hazards conveniently align with the EU taxonomy as well. Uh, so it's basically a platform that allows companies to scalably prioritize uh, risks and also come up with mitigation and adaptation measures. Thank you, Rylan. I believe these insights are very actionable. It is clear to see that there will be challenges for organizations on the journey to net zero. However, saying this, there are existing tools and platforms and organizations that provide relevant support. So uh, moving on, you know, we've spoken about challenges and difficulties and we've spoken about the steps companies can take to overcome them. I thought it would be interesting to share some positive news as well. Definitely, yeah. Could you tell me some examples of pharma companies that are progressing or doing really well in terms of climate related issues? Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to go first and discuss some examples if that's okay. Um, I think there's one kind of clear one that kind of sticks out at the top of my head. Um, So just as a kind of start, so AstraZeneca, I think, is one organisation which are really showing how they're progressing and taking, you know, the net zero and climate change seriously. Um, They actually launched their Ambition Zero programme and it's called Ambition Zero Carbon, um, and that was back in 2020. And they were one of the first of seven companies actually to receive a validation of their net zero target from the science-based target initiative. So they are aligned to that science definition of net zero. Um, And as an organization themselves as well, they've also set ambitious targets as well for reducing their scope one and scope two emissions by 98% by 2026 from a 2015 baseline. And then in 2021, this was progressed I think when the company managed to reduce its scope one and scope two emissions by around 59%. Um, But I think one thing is really key to note is that 95% of AstraZeneca's emissions actually come from scope three, which is their supply chain, which Ryland touched upon earlier on. Um, And these are then emissions that aren't produced by the company itself, but these are indirect through, you know, purchasing goods and services, things like employees commuting, business travel, and also waste generated in operations. Um, So AstraZeneca have therefore also set targets to reduce their scope three emissions. And their aim is to reduce these by 50% by 2030 from a 2019 baseline, and then achieve that 90% reduction by 2045 meaning that they would hopefully achieve net zero by 2045 at the latest, which is five years ahead of the Paris Agreement net zero 2050 ambition. That sounds amazing. Um, However, this is very interesting and very relevant to our first challenge. I mean, how do they plan to achieve these targets? This will impact their entire supply chain. Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Um, (laughs) And I think there's a few answers which we can kind of have a little look at here. So um, to deliver on this ambition, I think it's really key that, you know, organisations are setting themselves across the board a number of different goals. Um, And some examples, again, are that, you know, ensuring that 95% of spend with key suppliers, um, with the companies, and making sure that they are, do have approved science-based targets by 2025 is one key thing. But another 
other thing as well is kind of um, a great example from AstraZeneca is around that they've actually uh, looking and developing at the moment pressurized meter dose inhalers. So these have up to actually 99.9% less global warming potential, potential than propellant inhalers currently, um, which are used in respiratory medicines. And to really put kind of that importance and that into perspective. So if a patient at the moment is to use a Ventolin Evohaler for a daily dose of up to kind of eight puffs, that would actually equate to around 1,400 annual car miles, which is just Whoa. extraordinary. Um, and I think this is just one great example of how pharmaceuticals are aligning to a net zero target. So it's not just about, you know, putting down targets on a table and saying we're wanting to achieve this. It's around them showing that kind of innovation. They have that credibility and insurance that then organisations are going to be able to align and be sustainable across to reach their net zero goals aligned with science. It is great to see organisations such as AstraZeneca leading the way when it comes to aligning to the science definition of net zero. Um, are there any ways in which companies within the industry are supporting one another when it comes to the fight against climate change? Yeah, definitely. So um, we are starting to see some great best practice across the pharmaceutical industry on supporting one another to reduce emissions. And I think one very exciting initiative, which just comes to the top of my mind, is the Medicines Manufacturing Innovation Centre, known as MMIC. So this was actually officially opened in November 2022, and it's based in Glasgow. And it's a state-of-the-art facility. It's designed to accelerate the development of new generation pharmaceutical manufacturing processes. Is, but sustainability is at its heart. So one of their aims is to become a carbon neutral facility and that's a key ambition for MMIC so that best practices can then be demonstrated to the wider industry to support the fight against climate change and it's a safe space for them to be able to put different practices, thoughts and ideas and innovation and technologies to then be able to push that then across the pharmaceutical industry globally. Thank you Lauren. So last but not least, I thought we could have a peek into the future. What are some upcoming trends and innovative approaches that companies will be able to take in the next couple of years? And what do you think clients should be focusing on in the upcoming year? Uh, yeah, so I think there's lots of things that I could probably touch on, um, but I'll, I'll just call it one of the things that I think is most important and and increasingly urgent and i think it's it's with regards to how the development of climate related disclosures uh, is has been trending over the past couple of years um, so investors and, and other stakeholders have been asking for companies to disclose climate related information but often through voluntary channels uh, through frameworks like the CDP or in a company's standalone sustainability report. But what we're seeing is a trend to these disclosures being more regulated and mandated for companies to follow. And I think the best example that's happening right now is the developments in the U.S. Uh, where the, the SEC is... Uh, as part of its its rules to to enhance climate related disclosures across the market uh, is basically proposing uh, to to mandate that companies report in line with those TCFD requirements. 
Um, so it'd be really interesting to see how that rule is is finalized and develops over time. Uh, and and I think EcoAct is, you know, again, well, well positioned to help companies sort of navigate these these regulations, uh, both on the climate risk side, but but also on the decarbonization side as well. Thank you, Rylan. Lauren, any insights from your side? Yeah, definitely. So just a few points for me to touch on. So I think we've kind of identified, right, it's crucial that pharmaceutical organisations need to turn their net zero pledges into credible strategies to reach net zero. Um, I mean, the likes of the science-based target initiative, net zero standards, this will massively support the pharmaceutical industry to align to best practice through utilising this framework. And the requirements then of these standards, they're incredibly rigorous, but they do ensure that organisations such as pharmaceutical aligned to the climate science and it also avoids making unfound claims that may be perceived as greenwashing as well um, and I expect that we'll start to see more long-term goals being set as well and improved awareness of climate risk as well as progressing to progress sorry being made on scope three measurements and reporting throughout the year of 2023 and beyond um, and I think another point as well that I'd just like to touch on is that we are really starting to now see more pharmaceutical organizations become more innovative to create and develop low carbon products and services which is really exciting so it's not just around working you know with suppliers and um, it's around kind of looking at what is it we can do as an organization to be innovative and reduce the emissions of those drugs potentially which we are providing out to our consumers and customers and as I mentioned earlier on AstraZeneca was a great example of this how they're developing that pressurized meter dose inhaler to reduce carbon emissions by 99.9% and in turn these innovations aren't only just supporting AstraZeneca to reduce their own emissions but it's also shown their commitment to directly support for example the likes of the NHS to reduce its emissions so um, um, inhalers, for example, at the moment, they currently account for approximately 3% of NHS England's carbon footprint. So imagine if we could get those inhalers out across the likes of the NHS Trust, um, the great you know, reductions we would then start to see in those carbon emissions through that innovation. Brilliant insights. Thank you so, so much. And with this, we reached the end of our podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time for this conversation. It was really a pleasure to have you on today's episode. And as we usually do, could you please share your contact details in case some of our listeners want to reach out to you? Yeah, of course. Well, thank you so much for having us. It's been such a pleasure. I've really enjoyed being part of this podcast. And if anyone like to reach out, has got any questions um, or would just like to have a conversation, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. Um, you'll be able to find my name, Lauren Sugden. I've got the Atos background and everything's posted about sustainability. So hopefully you shouldn't miss me. Love that. Great. Yeah, thanks both. Um, and, and likewise for me, I think LinkedIn is is, is always the best way. Uh, so you can just search for my name, Rylan Urban. Uh, not many not many Rylan Urbans out there, so I should come <laughs> up first. Um, yeah, looking forward to being in touch. Thank you once again, Lauren and Rylan. And thank you to all our listeners for tuning in. Don't forget, next month we'll be returning with another insightful episode. Our two guest speakers, Miles Newman and Dave Berry will be diving into the topic of digital manufacturing in pharma. So don't miss out. Follow Atos Health and Life Sciences on social media to get informed about new episodes each month.
Talk to you later. Stay tuned for more insights from Atos.